Are you ready? Say it like you believe it's God's Word. Anyone or anything that touches these offerings will become holy. Say it again. Anyone or anything that touches these offerings will become holy. One more time. Anyone or anything that touches these offerings will become holy. Let me pray for you. Close your eyes, reach out. Father, in the name of Jesus, in these next 32 minutes, 31 minutes and 57 seconds, I'm praying that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit. I consecrate every auditorium to your glory. I pray for your presence to move supernaturally in every life. Illuminate your word. I pray that there will be a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know you better. Illuminate Jesus and his work in our lives. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And if you believe it, shout amen. Amen, amen. amen. Say a high five with two people and say, this is for you. Grab a seat together and let's dive in. In July of 2015, one week after Arise Conference, in fact, four days after it closed, on a Wednesday night, I found myself in a hotel room in San Diego, California. It was 2.30 a.m. in the morning. I was jet lagged up the wazoo, couldn't sleep. So I decided that I would read the book of Leviticus. Anybody out there with me found the book of Leviticus really good for two things in your life. Number one, destroying your one-year Bible reading program. And number two, curing some long-term battle with insomnia. Anybody with me? So it's half past two in the morning. I thought, I'm gonna read the book of Leviticus. And I began to open it. Started at chapter one, started making my way through. And what was unfortunate for me, given what I would like it to do on this particular night, is that it seemed like every passage of Leviticus, God was just speaking to me. Truth from God's Word was coming out. I came home and preached the series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. I don't know if anybody's been around long enough to remember it. But as I was making my way through the book of Leviticus, I got to one passage of Scripture. And when I read it out loud, when I read it to myself, I said out loud, 2.30 a.m. in the morning, in a hotel room in San Diego, California, and I said out loud, that can't be right. I'm reading God's Word, right? I mean, if you know anything about me, you'd know I am a God's Word, a Bible guy. I have written Bible commentaries on every book in the Bible from Genesis to 1 Samuel, a bunch of the books of the New Testament. I've memorized two books of the Bible, many chapters, thousands of verses. And as I was reading God's Word, a book that I am fairly familiar with, I found myself looking at the pages of God's holy word, thinking that something must be wrong. And I said out loud, that can't be right. If you know anything about the book of Leviticus, you would understand that this book is so much more than a way to cure insomnia. It is actually a book that calls God's people to holiness. Israel was God's chosen people. And the first five books of the Bible are really dedicated to God birthing this chosen people and then calling them to live as His special people. Called, separate, a holy nation, a people that was set apart, a people that belonged to God. And this particular book, the book of Leviticus, is God going into great detail about that walk 
of holiness and of being set apart to Him that God desired for them to have in their lives. I wanna take a moment this morning and I just wanna wrap holiness for you, okay? Because the truth is we are in a world today that is kind of giving up on the thought of holiness. Many people in our world right now are sneering at discernment, trying to ignore the reality, and it is a reality. The emperor has clothes. There is good, there is bad. There is good and there is evil. There is right and there is wrong. There are things you should do and there are things that you shouldn't do. There is sin, there is a devil, and there is a real holy God. If you believe it, give me a loud amen out there today. Holiness is real. In fact, holiness is what makes heaven, heaven. If there's no holiness, there's no heaven. The Bible tells us about heaven that once we get there, God is gonna wipe away every tear from our eye. That sorrow and mourning that's not for all the night people I'm out there to say, yeah, no more mornings. No, I mean, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. There'll be no more mourning, no more sorrow. That there's gonna be no more in our lives that feeling like things are messed up and broken. Heaven is the place of perfect joy. And the reason why heaven is heaven is because there's no sin in heaven. The holiness of heaven is what makes heaven heaven. What do you mean, John? I mean that in heaven, no one is gonna exploit anybody else. When you get to heaven, there's gonna be no more selfishness to cause division in our relationships. No pride, no lust, no bitterness, no jealousy. You can't have heaven without holy. Heaven is heaven because it is holy. I could go on and on, but I'm gonna move on. That's why the book of Leviticus is so powerful because it is a call to holiness. In the book of Leviticus, God is saying to His people, I want you to be holy. I want you to be clean. I want you to be free from sin. And then Leviticus goes into great detail about what we are to do whenever we do find ourselves with sin in our lives. Leviticus goes into tremendous specificity about the sacrifices that are to be offered up whenever sin was committed by one of God's people. It's important that we understand about sin that sin does bring death. We talked about this last week, right? We're just building from week to week, so stay with me and I'll preach faster. We looked at it last week, that when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they brought spiritual death into their lives. And whenever there is sin, Someone has to die. A price must be paid whenever there is sin. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So when you read the book of Leviticus, the reason why it's quite challenging for some is because it goes into a lot of detail about the lamb or the goat or the dove that is to be offered up for the forgiveness of our sin. It's, it's really powerful because it's leading us to Jesus. We understand about Jesus that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're grateful for that Lamb, give Him praise in every campus. We should always, always give Him praise. Whenever the offerings were presented to God, the person who presented the right offering received forgiveness for their sin, okay? Now the Bible tells us about the law. 
which is the first five books of the Bible, including the book of Leviticus, that the law is a schoolmaster, that it exists to lead us to Jesus. The law shows us what sin is so that we can be clearly aware of it. You don't understand your need for Jesus until you realize that you need Jesus. And in this book, God intentionally takes us on a journey to outline the sin that is in us to get us to the point where we understand our need of a Savior. That's the tension. That's what we often wrestle with. Because Leviticus is a point of tension because what it does is Leviticus reveals the problem. It's designed to show us the magnitude of our struggle against sin. Leviticus is literally this tension book, this preceding the climax book that is designed to get us to a point where we feel exhausted, exasperated. It's supposed to drive you to your knees and say, I can't do it in my own strength. It's supposed to get you to the point where on your knees, you lift hands towards heaven and say, help me, Jesus, because I need your help. See, here I am, it's 2.30 a.m. in the morning. It's four days after a RISE conference. How many people have ever been through a RISE conference and understand that after an all-night flight from New Zealand on a Sunday night, an all-night flight from New Zealand, I literally preached Arises One, or sorry, was at Arises One, flew to Auckland, got on a plane, flew to America, then drove to San Diego. You understand that by Wednesday night, I don't wanna be awake at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. I am like, the Lord gives sleep to those He loves. If He loves me, knock me down, right? 2.30 a.m. in the morning. And here I am, and I'm reading this passage of Scripture. And as I read it, something triggers within me. I look at the passage, and I say, something must be wrong. This, This just can't be right. I read this passage, and it says, anyone or anything that touches these offerings will become holy. And I said out loud, that can't be right. Because surely it must read, must be holy. Anyone or anything that touches these offerings must be holy. Surely that's what it's teaching. I mean, we're talking here about the altar about sacrifices, about how we are to approach God. Surely it's saying that if you're gonna approach that altar, if you're gonna touch that sacrifice, that you must be holy. You better get clean before you touch the offering. Surely that's what it's saying. In fact, depending on what version, what translation of the Bible you read, some of you out there today read Bibles that literally do translate this verse, must be holy. In biblical translation, there are two themes. Some translators translate the Bible what's called word by word. They take the Hebrew words and they take the Greek words and they translate them into English and then in the gaps between the Greek and the next Greek word or the Hebrew and the next Hebrew word, they insert extra words in order to join them together. So the verbs and the nouns and the adjectives are inserted to make Hebrew grammatically correct in English. And then there's another way of translating the Bible, which is to do it phrase by phrase. So you look at a phrase in the Hebrew 
and you translate the phrase into English in order to give the intentionality of what the, what the whole phrase in the Hebrew is saying rather than, rather than kind of just joining it together with your own words. There's nothing wrong with either translation. You should probably have a couple of each if you wanna dive into biblical study. But the truth is that the word-by-word translations, although they are probably more accurate in the Hebrew words that are used, they leave room for the view of the translator to get inserted in the middle of what the Bible is actually saying. So we're wrestling here with a passage of Scripture where it's translated in the Bible two ways. Will become holy or must be holy. And I understand the tension because we're talking here about holiness. It's not a superficial or insignificant topic that we are discussing. The word holy in Scripture literally means to be hallowed, to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be clean. You could translate the word holy, perfect. So it makes sense that for some translators, they translated this and they said, must be holy. But if, if what the Bible is teaching is that you must be holy, then we are introducing the possibility that if we are unholy and we touch the sacrifice, that the unholiness that is in our lives could make something bad happen to the sacrifice that's in front of us. If you touch it, you'll change it. That's the outcome of that way of thinking. And if that's the outcome of that way of thinking, then it's saying that the sin is greater than the sacrifice. That you have the power as an unholy person to negatively impact the sacrifice of sin that is being offered up. It says the sin is greater than the sacrifice. So our question today is which trumps which? Which is greater than the other? Which is the ace of hearts? Is it the sacrifice or is it the sin? Which has the power to change the other? Well, this we know for sure, that if there is sin in your life and a sacrifice is offered up for you, that the sacrifice has the power to make unholiness in our lives holy once more. But there is nothing in the Bible to suggest that unholiness can impact that which is holy. I put it to you today that you don't make holy unholy. Unholy makes unholy holy again. Anyone or anything that touches these offerings will become holy. Why? Because you don't change holy, holy changes you. I need you to understand that when you touch the perfect sacrifice, you have no power in and of yourself to change the sacrifice. You don't change the sacrifice, my friend. The sacrifice changes you. You don't make that which is perfect imperfect. That which is perfect makes the imperfect perfect once more. The offering, if the offering is acceptable, then whatever touches it becomes like it is. I need you to understand that when you reach out and you touch Jesus, you have no power to change Jesus, but Jesus has got all the power in the world 
to change you. That when we reach out to him, he changes us, frees us, heals us, washes us clean, restores us. When you touch Jesus, Jesus changes you. If you believe that, could you give God just a little bit of praise in this auditorium today? This is at the core of our struggle. When we're in the middle of a series about freedom, freedom, at the core of our struggle is are you holy or are you not? Are you worthy to come near God or are you not? And this is why as a child, I read the scripture and I read it that if I was gonna touch the sacrifice, I must be holy. Not realizing that this is not an accurate translation of this passage. The accurate translation is that if I reach out and I touch it, there's nothing in me that's gonna make this sacrifice impure, but that which is pure is gonna make me pure. If I reach out and touch it, it has the power to cleanse me, to change me, to heal me. I came here to tell somebody it's time to stop holding back from coming up to Jesus and touching Him and reaching out to Him. He can cleanse you no matter what is broken, flawed, unclean, dirty. If you reach out and touch Jesus, Jesus is gonna change you. One more time, could we give God some praise in this building this morning? There's a couple of verses that you're gonna find in each of what are called the synoptic gospels that are very important that we understand in the light of this passage of Scripture because being a New Testament Christian, being from a uh, European background, we don't really get them the way that the writers of the synoptic gospels did, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew chapter eight, verses two and three is this amazing little story where a man who has leprosy comes to Jesus And he says to Jesus, he falls on his knees and he says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You gotta understand that that which was unholy never got near that which was holy. A holy person would never touch leprosy and leprosy, leprosy, people who struggled, who had leprosy would never come near a holy man of God. They knew that distance must be kept. Yet here is a man with leprosy on his knees in front of a holy man of God, Jesus, and he's saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the Bible says about Jesus that Jesus said two things. Uh, Sorry, one thing, I am willing. And then Jesus reached down and he touched this unclean man and in touching him, he made him clean. Why? Because anyone or anything that touches the offering will become holy. I need you to understand the leprosy didn't jump onto Jesus. The holiness of Jesus jumped onto the leprous man. I need you to understand the sin in you never touches Jesus. The holiness of Jesus touches you. You can come to Him no matter what your struggle, no matter what you're bound by, no matter what keeps you captive, enslaves you, and keeps you distant from God. You can come to Him knowing that He's the God who reaches out and touches you. And when He touches you, you, He changes you, He frees you, He heals you, He restores you, and He makes you clean again. Oh, I need you to praise Him if you're starting to understand the power of the holiness of our God. 
See, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 28, it's just 10 verses on. So we're dwelling today on Leviticus 6, 18. But I just want to take you on a journey because Leviticus is cool. And if you come down to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 28, the Bible says that sometimes they would prepare an offering and they would use a pot, okay? So as the, anyone or anything who touches the offering will become holy. So that's our context. And then the Bible says if you use a pot to prepare your offering, if it's a clay pot, then when you finish making the offering, stay with me, you've got to take the clay pot and you've got to smash it to pieces. Now, the Bible says that we are clay, that our God is the potter. And the Bible says if you use the clay pot in order to prepare the sacrifice, then when you're finished, don't ever use it again. You've got to smash it. You've got to ruin it. You've got to say this pot will never be used for an ordinary purpose again. I need you to understand that when you come to Jesus, it's not like you keep your life. It's not like you keep your record. It's not like you still live in the ordinary you that you once were. If you've come to Jesus, you're broken for ordinary. You're ruined for unholy. You are destroyed to ever be an unclean vessel again. If you've got Jesus, then the righteousness of God is in you. The life of God is in you. The holiness of God is in you and you're broken to ever be an unholy vessel again. If you believe it, just jump to your feet and give God a second of praise. It's worthy of getting a little bit excited about. Whoa. See, what's amazing about Leviticus is when you start diving into it, I'm preaching myself excited today. When, when you dive into the book of Leviticus, it, it's, it's the reason why people get derailed in their one-year Bible reading plan is because it's right into an agricultural people and it goes into great detail about the offerings that are to be given up. Now, you're like, I don't care. I wanna know whether it's iOS 12.3. Like, that's where we live. And here we are reading a book written to an agricultural group of people, and it's like, when you bring the offering, then it needs to be this kind of sheep. <laughs> We're like, I don't need, I just, is it a sheep? I think that's a sheep. That's, that's, that's where we tap out, right? But it's like, it's gotta be this kind of sheep. It needs to be in really good condition. It can't have flaws, it can't have blemishes. The Bible just goes into huge detail. It's gotta be this, this kind of healthy goat. It's gotta be a dove. Like it's gotta be, this is the kind of offerings that you were to give up. And it's very, very specific. I mean, just part Leviticus, Jump over to Malachi chapter one. You can read it when you get home. But in verse five and six of Malachi one, God goes into detail again about the kind of sheep and goats that they were bringing as the sacrifice for their offerings. And God is like, what you're bringing to me is these sick, weak, and diseased animals. And God said, I would rather that you shut the doors of the temple than you bring me these kinds of offerings. They're not acceptable to me. Shut the doors of church. Come back when you've got a proper kind of sacrifice. Pause. I don't want to go here. Yep, go on, John, do it. That's why when you come to church, you don't stand still with your hands in your pockets during praise and worship because you don't bring to God a sick, weak, and diseased animal. You bring God a sacrifice of praise. The Bible says, lift up holy hands in the presence of the Lord. We're not bringing God sick, weak, and diseased animals. We're giving Him the kind of praise that we believe He's more important than the All Blacks game you watched last night. Some of you stood and shouted at your television, and then you sit in church with your hands in your pockets 
and your mouth closed. Shame on you. We come to worship the Most High God. You shouldn't have said that, John. I don't care. I said it. Give God some praise for about three seconds out there, everybody. Huge detail. I mean, Leviticus is like, it better be clean. It better be this kind of offering. It better be that kind of sacrifice. It better make sure it can't be diseased, malformed. It's got to be the perfect sacrifice. So much detail. That's why you struggle to read it. So much detail about the sacrifice. So much specificity. It obviously really matters. But there's something strangely omitted. Huge detail about the offering. Tremendous specificity about its health, its caliber, its acceptability. And then there is just nothing about the person who was bringing the sacrifice to be forgiven. So we've got this huge detail going, when you sin, this is the kind of offering that must be given up for the sin that you have committed. Huge detail about what that sacrifice must be like. And there is no mention of the caliber, the penitence, the sincerity, the purity of the person who is asking for the forgiveness of their sin. Because at the end of the day, when you come to God looking for forgiveness for your sin, God isn't looking at you, God's looking at the sacrifice. God's not looking at you, God's looking at Jesus. This is why people wanna stay away from God. They hide from God when they feel like they are not free when they're bound in sin, struggling with anxiety, don't wanna let go of their bitterness, driven by lust, consumed by hatred. They wanna cower in the corner, not listen to the Arise album. They wanna listen to some other mediocre album. Praise and worship is gone. Now they're listening to country and Western music because everybody knows country and Western music is the devil's music. So on my good days, on my good Christian days, I'm willing to stand before God, yell His praises. But oh my Lord, the day that I looked at porn, I'm not gonna come near to God. I'm gonna stay at a great distance. I don't know if heaven is where I wanna be. There's too many happy people there. We're like listening to our terrible music, running away from God, because we think that when we come to God, what God's looking at is us, whether we're worthy of Him or not. God isn't looking at you. The Bible doesn't give us any detail about you. All the Bible says is the sacrifice, the sacrifice. God's not looking at you, He's looking at Jesus. And when God looks at Jesus, He sees righteous, holy, perfect, beloved, accepted, chosen, favored, that means when God's looking at you, He says, righteous, holy, chosen, beloved, holy, and favored. Give God some praise in this auditorium. This is why we struggle. This is why we know defeat. This is why we can't find the victory that we want. Because we come to God hoping that we're good enough. He's not looking at you, he's looking at Jesus. Let me ask you a question. When's God gonna be pleased with you? No, I mean, seriously. When is God going to be pleased with you? 
What's it gonna take? When will he finally look at you and say, you're good? When will you truly be able to stand before him with confidence? What's it gonna take for you to worship with assurance? When will you know that you can come to him no matter what you need? When you pray two hours a day? I've tried that. When you memorize the book from the Bible? Tried that too. When you're no longer tempted by sin? When you're no longer struggling with sin? When you're no longer bound by habitual sin? What is it going to take for God to be pleased with you? Because in the back of your mind, you're trying to get there. Well, the Bible says something about accepting Jesus. It says that, in fact, this is a huge New Testament theme. We're gonna do a series on it sometime in the next three years. But this is incredible, because <laughs> uh, it's gonna change your life. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that when we come to know Jesus, we are now in Christ. Okay, so it was an old me, but now if I'm alive to Jesus, I am now in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If anyone, Ephesians says, is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So if I know Jesus, my identity is no longer in me, it's in Christ. So here's our question. Is God pleased with Jesus? I need you to understand that if God is pleased with Jesus, God is pleased with you. I need you to understand that you don't have to do anything more for God to love you, accept you, be pleased with you, to welcome you, to embrace you, to heal you, to restore you, to redeem you, to lift you up. God is pleased with Jesus and God is pleased with you. You don't need to do anything to stand before Him with confidence. You stand before Him with confidence and then you'll be able to do everything that you need. Come on, the band can come and join me on stage right now. I was driving to the Arise Center, half past five this morning, and as I was making my way down the, the hill, I suddenly had this thought in my head about cycling. Now, I used to be, in another lifetime, I used to be a fairly talented road cyclist. I am now 14 kilograms heavier. Back then, I was so skinny, people put photos of me on their fridge and prayed for me every day. I was a pretty talented road cyclist in my day. I, I was actually pretty good for my age and people can testify of that. There are people out here still cycling who've never broken my records on Strava. So just ripping myself out there. But, but anyway, we, we, when I was a really good road cyclist, the thing that I learned was about efficiency. The only way you can actually be a successful cyclist is if you use your energy efficiently. You've seen them all riding in those big groups, right? The reason why they ride in those big groups is because if there are cyclists in front of you and you are behind them, it's called the draft. And it is 15 to 30% easier to cycle when you are in the draft. So if you don't use your energy well and you've got to ride 160 kilometers or 200 kilometers, you are never gonna win unless you're efficient energy conservation. So this is what you do, you stay in the draft. You stay closely connected. If you get a little bit excited and you break off the front, think you're better than everybody else, well, you'll never last. And if you don't have the persistence to stay with the bunch and you fall off the back, 
then what was suddenly difficult becomes extremely difficult. And you're in a whole lot of pain until you finally dismount that bicycle. It's all about staying with the group. Christianity is about trying to live a life of victory over the things that seem to come at us from the left and at the right. But this is what most Christians do. They stay connected to God in the moments where life is going well and their Christianity is performing in line with the ideals that they have set for themselves. And when they're not, they pull themselves back and they try to do it on their own. This is what Paul wrote about when he said in Galatians, that which you began in the Spirit, do you honestly think that you can fix it in the flesh? You gotta stay connected. You gotta stay connected. Anyone or anything that touches the offering will become holy. If you're not connected, you're not gonna make it. John chapter 15, if you're taking notes, you should because you'll get to heaven if you do. But John chapter 15, an amazing passage of Scripture that, where Jesus talked to us about Himself being the vine, the Father being the gardener, and us being the branches. If you know it, just kind of like wave or nod your head or something. Yeah, I can see you, that's good. In this amazing passage, Jesus says, He says, I am the vine, my Father is the gardener, abide in me and I will abide in you. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Few people like it. I think you're asking that as a loaded question and I am. It's not what it says. I've preached it that that's what it says, but that's not what it says. Verse one does say, I am the vine, my father is the gardener. Verse four does say, remain in me and I will remain in you. But we're leaving out a very key scripture. Anyone or anything that touches the offerings will become holy. We believe that, right? We know that we've got to keep connected if we're going to overcome our sin. So He's the vine, the Father is the gardener. Put verse 3 on the screen. This is what verse 3 says. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. In a horticultural metaphor, what has cleanliness got to do with anything? Nothing other than you and I understanding that the only way we're ever going to remain in the life God has for us is if we abide in Jesus, stay connected. And Jesus had to pivot from His horticultural metaphor for us to understand that if you don't understand that you're already clean, not because you had a good Christian day, not because you listened to the Immerse album, not because you read the Bible, not because you didn't yell at your kids, you need to understand you are clean because of the Word that He has spoken. You are clean because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You are clean because you touch the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because you are clean, you can abide in Him. So this is what we do. On my good Christian days, I run to God. 
On my bad Christian days, I run to God. I cling to Him. I throw myself upon Him because it doesn't matter what I've done, where I've been, what I'm going through, what defeat I find. In Jesus, I am holy, cleaned, righteous, accepted, victorious, and that's who I am. If you believe it, give your God some praise in every campus right now. Come on, give your God some praise. Stand your feet, stand your feet. Stand your feet in every single location. I've touched the Lamb. I've touched the Lamb. I found myself. <laughs> it's now 4.30 in the morning, Ed. And luckily, Americans, when they talk, they yell. So it was kind of okay. But it's now 4.30 a.m. in the morning in a hotel room in San Diego, San Diego. And I'm pacing up and down. And I'm yelling at the top of my voice, I am holy. I am holy. I am holy. I've touched the Lamb. I've touched the Lamb. I'm holy. I'm, not, I'm destined for extraordinary purpose. I'm ruined for today's struggles. Today is my day of victory. And if you believe that for you, could you just praise God for just a minute? Today is your day to end your lonely battles. Today is your day to run to God, to reach out to Him, to know that you are clean, to find all the strength you need, the grace you need, the power and the help you need to overcome every struggle that you've ever faced in your life. If you believe it, praise God like you believe somebody around you needs to know that if you've touched Jesus, Jesus changed you. We finished week one with this question. Does behavior inform identity or does identity inform behavior? Does what you do decide who you are or does who you are decide what you do? If you've touched Jesus, your identity is holy. And no matter what you face, no matter what you struggle with, no matter how dark or dirty you feel, I want you to come to your God in every moment. Lift your hands high towards Him and say, I am holy because of the love of Jesus. If you believe it one more time, could you just give God a shout of praise?